Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 5 of Undercover. I'm Kayla Baker. It's time to look at fear, more specifically, the fear created by misinformation. In this episode, we look at myths and conspiracies, alongside what kind of work is being done to counteract the threat of fiction masked as fact. There's no better place to start than the history of vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we spent a lot of mental energy focusing on the words of a vocal few anti-vaccination activists. By employing social media and the tools of the internet, they can come across as a modern phenomenon. But as reporter Daniel Cook explores, anti-vaxxers are as old as the vaccine itself. Throughout the course of the coronavirus, we've been dealt our fair share of misinformation. From the early days of the pandemic to now, with anti-vaxxers playing on society's hesitation toward a new medical procedure, they have at times made a compelling case. But this case is solely based on fear and opportunism, driving some further into the territory of anti-vaccination. And if you look at history, the strategies employed by the anti-vaxxers in the past bear a striking resemblance to those used today. Yeah, so the more I did research into the history of anti-vaccination movements, the more it became clear that these movements kind of follow a, a specific archetype. That's Paula Larson. Larson is a doctoral researcher at the University of Oxford, who specialises in the history of vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. From her research, Larson argues that there are a set of standard strategies used in trying to discourage others from getting vaccinated. So in the past, they often said doctors were capitalizing off it, they were making money, that the state was trying to increase its control. And that's 135 years ago, you still see those same arguments. And so this this kind of road would begin with an individual stepping up, they would release a lot of popular information. And then those who already had questions or concerns about those policies who are already vaccine hesitant would be more or less than pushed into a movement of anti-vaccination. It's important to note that these strategies are not just theoretical. There are real-world historical examples where people rioted against vaccines. In Montreal in 1885, there was anti-vaccination riots, but it also happened again in 1900 in um, Vancouver when there were some mandatory vaccine policies happening then. It happened again in 1919 in Toronto, So you see this happen over and over again, um, and it's the same thing that we're seeing now today. But one thing that sets today's vaccine debates apart from those of the past is the degree to which medical science has evolved. Larson says the advent of germ theory, which states germs lead to disease, changed the framework of the medical debate. I mean, we had vaccines as early as 1796 and inoculations much longer than that. But from 1796 to most of the 1800s, you don't have germ theory. So even understanding whether or not disease was caused by germs was difficult for lots of people to know. It was from this point when homeopathy, naturopathy and other competing medical theories gave way to the development of medicine, that medical theory offered up a correct scientific answer to questions of disease and illness. It's when professionalization of medicine really took place in the 1920s that those competing uh, medical theories were, of course, proven to be not medical science and and not correct. They are pushed out of the professionalization of medicine. And that's when it becomes those are disinformation. So instead of just choosing which theory you decided to follow, we had proven that one was correct, which was germ theory. 
and suddenly all the other theories, of course, then are are incorrect um, and proven to be so. And those doctors and those individuals who followed homeopathy and, and naturopathy and a few of these alternative medical practices, they felt that their place was was removed within medical practice. And they tended to then capitalize on anti-vaccination movements to try and bring their space back to kind of regain some sort of space in medical theory. From then on, natural cures and bogus information on vaccines became more than another viewpoint. They became false and transformed from what Larson called competing information into disinformation. Despite this, anti-vaxxers continued to claim what they had in the past, that vaccines cause all sorts of other diseases, even though this is largely because of cross-contaminated vaccinations in the past and so on. From this point, fact became fiction, and anti-vaxxers blatantly exploded the fears of society. In the anti-vax rhetoric, they would say that it caused typhoid, that it caused tetanus, that it caused tuberculosis and syphilis, um, that it caused cancer, that it caused brain damage, mental defectiveness. I'm saying that in quotes from the time. So those theories have always been around. People have always just looked for something to point to when they said, don't get a vaccine. They would just pick whatever disease they chose. Um, and those are the reasons they've stuck around. We haven't, we haven't lost those conversations. They just changed what they've decided to point to. But what deserves to be understood in this conversation is that despite the lies, despite the falsehoods, and despite the setbacks, humans have used vaccines to end pandemics for years now. We eliminated smallpox in the 1970s, a disease that killed hundreds of millions of people over the years. And so I ask Larson a small but important question. I wonder whether there is reason to be optimistic that we as a society can encourage people to get vaccinated and end this pandemic. I am optimistic about us, you know, coming out of a pandemic. It, I believe it will happen at least in the next few years and vaccination will, will be a huge part of that. And the anti-vaccination sentiment that has risen in the last year is not a new thing and in the past has never really succeeded in stopping a disease. Um, a, a smallpox epidemic has never not stopped because of anti-vaccination. That was Daniel Cook speaking with Paula Larson, a doctoral researcher from the University of Oxford. For more information of our expert, see the show notes. Following the vaccine rollout, many rumours have started to arise around possible negative side effects. One of the latest claims is the impact the vaccine could have on a young woman's fertility. In this following story, I will be exploring the truth how this information was spread so easily, and the fear it has installed in young women. <laughs> a young woman should not be expected to make a choice between her fertility and being vaccinated against a global pandemic. But for young women around the world, claims surrounding this are causing fear and concern. I think it instills a bit of fear in people, especially because the information you read is either strong one way or the other. There's nothing really in between. Miriam Wilkins is an ideal candidate for someone who is affected by this claim. She is a 27-year-old hoping to extend her family and she is a paramedic. Working in the medical field means she is most likely required at some point to get the vaccine. I'm not considering getting the vaccine at all. 
until it becomes a community problem and it's affecting my job specifically. If pushed more, I think that will be when I start to really worry about it. Unable to find a reassuring answer to her concerns, she continues to research and waits for the government to give a detailed response. Let me just open my links I've saved. Basically, it's just surrounding how to make a choice whether you want it or not. It's not actually giving you much information on any effects because I don't believe I've got any. Due to limited time spent on producing the vaccine, there is not a lot of information to share regarding fertility. But there is also no evidence to prove the claim is true. Well, it can't be. That's the thing. I mean, it's, it's purely, you know, just someone dreamed it up. That was Dr Alex Polyakov, a fertility specialist, obstetrician and gynaecologist who has spent 20 years training and working in women's health. He strongly disagrees with the claims the vaccine will impact fertility. There is no physiological way that these particular vaccines and this particular virus would have any impact on fertility, either male or female. The original claim was made by German physician Wolfgang Wudag and former Pfizer employee Michael Yeadon. Both men asked for clinical trials to be delayed, stating the vaccine could cause the body to make antibodies against a protein involved in the development of placenta and therefore making women infertile. This claim spread worldwide, but continues to be debunked by researchers. Really absolutely no evidence that that is actually true, that vaccines affect fertility in any way. In any vaccine, not just the COVID vaccine, but any other vaccine. Vaccination is the most effective way to prevent the actual disease. And in most instances, the disease would have much higher chance of negatively impacting fertility. Pregnant women not being included in the clinical trials is one of the reasons why there is still uncertainty surrounding the claim. In the initial trials of COVID vaccines, pregnant women were specifically excluded from participating, but there were quite a large number of women in the United States, especially who were pregnant and were frontline workers and were vaccinated anyway, and they don't seem to have any problems with their pregnancy. I am slightly wary about new vaccines generally because they tend to test on healthy males or healthy females. I spoke with retail store manager Erin Pratt, a young lady who is not interested in having kids. While the risk of infertility isn't of concern to her, she has still been made aware of the claims circulating online. I wasn't going to think there was that much basis to it without researching it myself, but I also don't want kids, so an infertility problem with the vaccine isn't a huge issue to me personally. The topic isn't an issue for Erin, but her opinion on information being spread without factual evidence is... When I hear rumours about the vaccine, I try to research it and be educated in it. I certainly don't pass anything on until I've researched it and I'm sure that what I'm saying is the truth. And as for where everyone seems to hear the misinformation claims and rumours? I had heard a little bit about the vaccine causing issues with infertility, again, mainly through social media like Facebook and stuff. So it does come up on, on, on Facebook and various other social networks. Is hard not to be influenced by the bold claims and then the conversations that come out of it with friends and family and the emotional result of those claims. It's hard not to get caught up in that.
and taking people's word on social media as gospel. Facebook, Twitter and Instagram have been inundated with misinformation claims resulting in many people thinking there is a link between the vaccine and a woman's fertility. Family medicine physician Michelle Rockwell has had to experience this lately when she shared her miscarriage and vaccination on her highly followed social media platform. Despite experiencing her miscarriage three weeks prior to receiving the vaccine, someone created a viral post claiming she caused her miscarriage. In reference to the viral post, she claimed they changed the dates of her vaccine and miscarriage to fit in with their agenda. Misinformation claims like this are quickly turning into disinformation claims and are intentionally harmful. Well, I think any misinformation is extremely harmful. I think if you look at other countries, not perhaps in Australia, but to achieve a high level of vaccination is absolutely essential for them to control the spread of the virus. Any disinformation in relation to fertility is harmful in the sense that it may prompt people to act against their best interests. And when asked if he would recommend the vaccine to his patients, Dr Alex Polyakov did not hesitate. I would absolutely advise them to get the vaccine. I would say that the chance of the vaccine affecting fertility is zero or as close to zero as it can be. That was Dr Polyakov talking on the COVID-19 vaccine and fertility. While Indigenous Australian communities have kept coronavirus largely at bay, First Nations Health Services are working to fight misinformation during the unfolding vaccine rollout. Tyler Wright has more. On a clear Melbourne afternoon, I meet with Yorta Yorta man Ian Ham inside the Koori Heritage Trust building at Federation Square. Good, how are you going? I learn he is chairman of the board, and as it turns out, he spearheads many other organisations as well. Uh, I was a public servant, senior public servant, for over 30 years. I was used to be the head of Aboriginal Affairs in Victoria. I meet with him to talk about how the many Australian Indigenous communities are reacting to the COVID-19 vaccine options and if there is any scepticism around getting the jab. When there's been talk of, and this isn't just Aboriginal communities, but this is a lot of people, a rapid development of a range of different vaccines all of them behaving a little differently, that certainly in itself has bred some uncertainty. He tells me that while social media has played a role in the spreading of misinformation, it's developments in the vaccine rollout, like blood clots being linked to the AstraZeneca shot, that have created apprehension. Particularly more uh, of the remoter communities where information sources are somewhat limited. The key to vaccine trust, as Ian puts it, is messaging from media outlets people are familiar with. If they're developing things for Indigenous people, your delivery mechanism has to be Indigenous media. The Australian Government Department of Health released a series of resources targeted at Indigenous Australians. These included social media posts and videos of First Nations elders being vaccinated. And while Ian says this is important, he is sure face-to-face service healthcare is more effective. You actually need a face to that, whether it's the CEO, whether it's a well-known identity that kind of stuff, actually saying, get out there and do this, as opposed to um, the Department of Health saying, get out there and do this, or the organisation saying, get out and do this. Despite this, some local health services are still struggling to get eligible members of their community vaccinated. 
Alice Brooks is the Media and Communications Coordinator at the Aboriginal Health Council of South Australia, or AHCSA. She says vaccines are going untouched by some communities. As the peak body for Aboriginal health in the state, the council oversees 12 health services. They are advocating for communities and health services to share the health information available about the COVID-19 vaccines so they can make an informed choice when deciding whether or not to be immunised. But Alice says people are largely saying no. I asked her about the different types of misinformation trickling through South Australian communities. Her list includes a fear of microchipping, a concern that white Australians are testing the vaccine on Aboriginal people, and the seemingly fast pace of the rollout. Alice mentions that there hasn't been a single death attributed to an Aboriginal person in South Australia. And this reminds me of something that Ian Ham mentioned in our chat. The initial response of the Aboriginal community to COVID was quite a good one. In fact, the Aboriginal community managed the whole COVID outbreak better than most. Ian brought up the idea that low case numbers may lead to people taking their time to get immunised. Well, it's not here, so why should I? Has taken hold a little bit. However, Alice says this has also led to a misconception that Indigenous genes are comparatively stronger and the booster isn't needed to fight the virus. The effort to provide resources and messaging to members of South Australian Health Services is a challenge Alice faces every day in her role as Media and Communications Coordinator. AHCSA uses social media, posters and information sheets in their services. But the most successful program, according to Alice, is the Yarning Circles on Onungul Pitanjara Yonkunjara lands. This is where trusted clinical team have been able to speak to elders and community members about the vaccine and why it is important. Alice says community are sick of receiving the same information. So the essential part of communication is constantly asking for feedback and catering messaging accordingly. As vaccinations are of course voluntary, health services will keep sharing accurate information with their communities. So this choice can be made on fact and not myth. That was Tyler Wright with her report on Indigenous health services overcoming fear through education. Where to from here? Early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, news outlets, websites and government press conferences were dominated by statistics and modelling, giving us snapshots of where we were and where we might be heading. That same data could now be used to help counter the spread of misinformation. Callum Allday reports. Throughout the coronavirus pandemic, health modelling has emerged as a prominent point of communication. Governments have used health modelling in press conferences to communicate policy choices and to justify steps they take to prevent outbreaks, while detractors use it to criticise policy points and demand action. But modelling has also emerged as a powerful tool in the fight against misinformation. It makes me sad that I dropped out of maths after year 10. Oh, 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 don't tell me that. It's too sad. This is Dr Trish Campbell, a research fellow at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity, specialising in mathematical modelling. She spoke to me about how mathematical modelling works and what it can be used for. So... Usually what we would do is we'd be trying to match the pattern of observed disease cases in a population. So we choose these values. You sort of tune your model so that you end up with your model um, 
output looking like your observed output. Dr. Campbell suggests vaccine models can particularly be used to highlight how diseases spread through a population at different levels of vaccine uptake. So a lot of what we do when we're when we're doing work for, for governments, for example, or when we're trying to inform policy, is um, we, we don't like to just pick a value and run a model for that value. We'll, we'll do a range of, of values and, and show this is the experience that you'll get under each of those values. So we might test, you know, vaccine uptake ranging from, you know, 30% to, to 90%, you know, or even show in an ideal world if 100% of people are vaccinated. Disease modelling can even be used to establish how misinformation can make an outbreak worse. A 2019 study modelled how the spread of harmful news can change outbreaks of the flu, monkeypox and norovirus by increasing the number of people exposed to each disease. It found that if the ratio of good advice to harmful advice during an outbreak moves from 50-50 to 60-40, infection rates reduced back to their baseline levels. Probably the best-known example of health modelling and communication being used together is a term you may remember from early during the pandemic. Flatten the curve. Flatten the curve. Successfully flatten the curve. Flattening the curve. Do an effective job in flattening this curve. I, I, I don't know whether you recall back at the beginning of the, um, of the pandemic um, where we had Scott Morrison had some modelling actually up on, mm. on, on a screen. So that was work that, that some of my colleagues had done. And, and I guess that this is where people, the bane of being an epidemiologist really, that it's, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. You, you produce models that say if we don't do anything, this is what it's going to look like, which is how we communicate that, that scenario. But infection modelling can sometimes heighten the spread of misinformation if it is poorly communicated. If we take action and infection numbers fall below what they were originally predicted, Dr. Campbell says people can sometimes try to argue the original numbers were wrong. However, she says there may be solutions to this. Well, the models aren't wrong because the models were showing what would happen if you didn't do anything. Um, so, so maybe then comparing what it would have been like without doing anything and what actually happened is a way to show how effective whatever it was that you did actually was. Mm. So we can certainly show the the likely outcome of not taking any action or of taking different actions. Dr. Campbell believes that while Australia is in a unique position regarding our COVID status, modelling can still be used to enhance public health messages and work towards a solution to misinformation. This is why, you know, if people say vaccines don't work, it's because we need to have a certain number. And if we maybe can show the continuum show the different effects that different levels of vaccine uptake have on what happens to to disease in the future that might help convince people even if she still has reservations yeah i think i think vaccine hesitancy is a is a very complex field and you know mm. probably one thing isn't going to to change their minds all in all Health modelling is like any other tool, something to be applied to the situation. But there are key takeaways from my interview with Dr. Campbell. Done right, health modelling can be an incredibly powerful predictive tool for governments and policymakers to inform their choices. Even more importantly, communicated well, 
Health modelling can not only help reduce infection rates by informing the public about the risks they face, it can also help as a call to action for vaccination drives. Even if the future can sometimes feel bleak, there are always people out there like Dr Campbell, helping the public to separate fact from fiction. That was Callum Allday, speaking with Dr Trish Campbell from Peter Doherty Institute. Misinformation not only spreads false or misleading content, it spreads fear. Today we have delved into how this plays out in practice, which has proven to be particularly dangerous in COVID times. For up-to-date information about Australia's vaccine rollout, always check the government's health website. A link will be in the show notes. Undercover is brought to you by RMIT Journalism. Thank you to our reporters, Daniel Cook, Tyler Wright, Callum Allday and myself, Kayla Baker. This episode was produced by Indiana Hansen. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tito Ambio, Janik Rogers and Zoe Daniels. Don't forget you can also leave us a message at 9018 Or contact us on Twitter at cover underscore podcast. You will hear from us next week with episode six. Speak soon. Speak soon.